Welcome back, everyone, to Behind the Shield. My name is Marco Estrella, and I'll be your host today. Thank you. Thank you for that welcome. It's the first time that we do a live show. Very impressive. I feel like I'm an episode of The Price is Right, but all you people there in the, in the audience, thank you very much. Um, so this is our annual sales kickoff. Um, and we are in a beautiful Esterel Resort in uh, a little, an hour north of Montreal. It's a beautiful resort on the lake. And to mark uh, the occasion, as I mentioned, this is our first Behind the Shield that is filmed live in front of a live studio audience. So thank everybody for being here. Um, we have colleagues from all, all over North America with us um, at the sales kickoff. And today we have people from uh, Montreal, obviously, Quebec City, Minnesota, Toronto, Michigan, uh, Illinois, New Brunswick. And um, very happy to see how the family's growing, how the company's growing. So this is great stuff. But that's not all today. Uh, you're here. You're in for a treat today on uh, the podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest joining us via satellite from Washington State. Uh, please put your hands together for Pulitzer Prize award-winning journalist and cybersecurity advocate, Byron Acohito. Thank you. Thank you very much. Byron, welcome to Behind the Shield. You're joining us from your home right now, I assume, right? Yes, nearby. I have a little studio, separate building, but uh, yeah, Seattle. Okay, great. I'm very honored to have you here. It's not, you know, it's not every day that we get a Pulitzer Prize winner on the show and somebody with your reputation. Can you tell our audience who you are and what you do on a daily basis? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a... Journalist, cyber, um, well, right now I'm a cybersecurity journalist. I guess you could call me that, but uh, I've been doing this for a long, long time. Uh, mainly as a, most of my career as a business reporter. I worked at uh, several newspapers, the last one being USA Today, sort of uh, in its heyday before uh, the internet kind of took apart the, the print news business. So yeah, that's where I'm a lot of this, a lot of my focus now comes from uh, covering Microsoft for USA Today as a technology reporter, uh, essentially from the 2000 to 2013. So as you can imagine, right then was the period when uh, cybersecurity became an issue, which we're gonna talk about at length today. And I even wrote about uh, one of Montreal's uh, famous participants, Mafia Boy. So yeah, I, that's, I'm, I have a long history of writing about this. So as a result, I've got uh, pretty good institutional knowledge. And it's a completely fascinating topic that uh, I'm going to end my career writing about. Uh, it's just, it's, it touches everything. And tell me a little bit about the Pulitzer Prize. Was it a career thing or was it a specific article or body of work? What, what was that? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, sure. The Pulitzer Prize I won prior to writing about technology. So previous to joining USA Today, I worked for the Seattle Times up here in Seattle, great uh, regional newspaper as the Boeing reporter. So Essentially, all I've done as a business reporter is cover Boeing and Microsoft. You could kind of add it up that way. But as while I was covering Boeing as a business, I 
uh, wrote about when their product failed. And of course, their product is a, you know, large jetliner wearing, uh, weighing, you know, 100 tons or so. So when those things crash, there's a lot of attention. And that's how I ended up winning a uh, Pulitzer. I um, covered uh, a design flaw in their 737 jets that caused a bunch of crashes, including one up in Pittsburgh. And that was kind of the, I worked on that for two years. So we ended up getting to the bottom of the story, what was the design flaw, and they changed it. So that's, uh, that's the story of the Pulitzer. And then that opened the door for me to move to a bigger newspaper who wanted somebody to cover Microsoft. So I could say that's, and then here I am today. <laughs> and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you with us. Byron's talk today is called Network Security Reborn, Leveraging Machine Learning Automation to Drive Legacy Defenses into Obsolescence. So I've read the summary and you're not gonna wanna miss it. It's gonna be great. So for those people who are regular listeners, thank you for joining us again this month. We're on our 10th episode of our podcast, Behind the Shield. We appreciate your support for being here. If this is your first time, welcome. This is a safe space for cybersecurity discussion. No sales pitches, just honest discussion about issues that concern our businesses and our private lives. In the next 60 minutes, we hope to inform you and entertain you so that you become regular listeners. You can always listen to previous podcast episodes on virtualguardian.com event. And if you're like me and you like to listen to your podcasts at the gym or while you're driving, you can find us on your favorite podcast service. The show's agenda is very simple. We start with a 30-minute current event discussion, followed by a 15-minute spotlight talk. And to close it out today, we're going to take live audience questions at the end of the show. And another behind the shield first. We're going to test something I call rapid fire. And we're going to put our guests to the test with some specific cybersecurity questions. So let me introduce the panel to my left now, my trusted cybersecurity experts. So first, directly to my left, Patrick Naum, Virtual Guardian CEO. Patrick helps clients with solutions on how to defend themselves against all manner of cyber threats. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. And directly from Minnesota, we have not one, but both Navilogic co-founders. We have Bill Strube and Bob Bennett. Hi, guys. It's good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, definitely a risk to have us both here at the same time. <laughs> and finally, our guest, Byron Akohito, has agreed to join the panel as well. So let's go. Let's get right into it and straight on to topic number one. Patrick, you're starting us off with some good news, actually. An international effort led to the closure of a major criminal marketplace on the dark web. So what happened there? Thanks, Marco. Uh, I brought this story to, I wanted to bring the story to everyone's attention for two reasons. Uh, number one, it's to follow on the two other stories we heard this year, actually 2022, when there was an arrest in Gatineau and another one in Toronto for the Lockbit and Netwalker hackers. And it's to show that there's more and more good news on the front of investigations and arrests uh, worldwide. So this latest one, it brings us back to the uh, Sesame Street days, was codenamed the Cookie Monster investigation. 
was led by the FBI in 17 different countries. And it was a collaboration with all sorts of police forces, including the RCMP here and the Sûreté du Québec in, in Quebec. The other reason why it was important as well is that they arrested six people in Montreal related to this. So what they've done is they closed down the Genesis Market. Genesis Market is a market that was not on the dark web, therefore making it more accessible to people. It was actually like a private club where you could get invited. And they had around 1.5 million uh I'll call it PC identities, and I'll get back to that in a second, and 80 million identities of people. And I say PC identities because these guys stole more than just password and credentials. They stole cookies. You now know why the operation was called Cookie Monster. They stole connectivity information, uh, everything that had to do with uh, autofill lists, fingerprint scans. So everything that permits someone to obfuscate and bypass multi-factor authentication. So you essentially took the credentials of your PC as if you were auto-logged on, as we often do, right? You register your computer and you don't need to get put your passwords anymore. So they were attacking and, and, and like unlimited amounts of people in various countries and collected a lot of money. So the folks in Quebec were caught out of 119 other people worldwide. And they essentially were people that bought the credentials and resold them on the dark web. So we have people on the regular web offering services and people buying and reselling this on the dark web. So the crackdown enabled uh, the FBI and other police forces to go to 208 properties to investigate and seize information. What was interesting and I didn't know until I, I read about this, is that they actually have sniffer dogs. So we know that dogs in the airport sniff for drugs, fruits and vegetables, et cetera. So they actually bought, brought the FBI dog in Quebec called Iris, a black Labrador that is trained to smell everything electronic, USB keys, disk drives, everything electronic. So they actually, because the challenge we talked about this today at our sales kickoff. When you're seizing information in a house, it's hard to find electronic devices. You could hide them anywhere. A USB key could be hidden anywhere. So now you have sniffer dogs that actually, and there's around 30 of them in, in the world actually, and they actually help law enforcement sniff out electronic devices. So that's another thing that was new to all of us uh, following the story. Uh, so a lot of new things, a lot of new technologies are being uh, developed and new approaches to, for law enforcement. And just to close, this was one year after the Hydra site was taken down off the dark web. But since then, five other sites came to life. It's like whack-a-mole. You, you, you shut down one, and there's three more that come out. But there's another one that just took off. It sticks, and it's specialized in financial fraud on the dark web. And it's the next best thing uh, for money launderers, drug dealers, and anyone that wants to do financial fraud. So there's a bit of good news, but a lot of bad news because these guys keep proliferating. But eventually, we're, we're going to make more headway there. Thanks, Patrick. In previous shows, you've talked to us about the arrests in Gatineau, Quebec, and in Toronto. It seems that when there is judicial willpower, bad guys actually get caught. 
In other jurisdictions, not so much. That speaks volumes about the rule of law and how some rulers turn a blind eye and even condone such criminal activity. I don't know if the panel has anything else to add. Uh, yeah, I, I would just uh, like to add that th thanks for that, uh, sharing all those details, Patrick. Um, the law enforcement and the judicial system deserves applause for these big operations. And they work on them all the time. They work very hard on them and they get results like this. But this really, you reference whack-a-mole, this really is the tip of the iceberg. And it's just a hint of how rich the uh, cyber criminal uh, ecosystem really is. So to get this little bit of detail is just, it doesn't really convey that this is like a tiny piece of feeding like internet access brokers who then, you know, there's a whole supply chain. And, um, you know, invariably the ones that get taken down are the ones that make stupid errors. There's many others that don't, that don't make any errors. And that's really the foundation of this. This is really the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that's out there in the, in the ecosystem though, for the criminals. Yeah, and, and, and Byron, I think you make a good point. Um, in this story, um, there is an ecosystem to this where the capability was sold to others. And so we found the others, but we didn't find the source capability. But if we continue to make progress against these networks, um, that's the right way to go. And you hope that the next one maybe takes down the source uh, eventually. But in the meantime, as the cookie monster, if C is for cookie, that's good enough for me. Huh, you really wanted to plug that one, eh, Bob? Well done, sir. Well done. Okay, thank you, Patrick, for that story. Let's move on to topic number two. Byron, you wanted to talk to us about Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's secret weapon. What details can you give us on this hot topic? Oh, yeah. So this is a, a story that's happening now and actually has been happening for five years. And it's essentially the bottom line is that Vladimir Putin is using advanced ransomware attacks as part of uh, the campaign against Ukraine and not just Ukraine against the US and Canada and, and the European allies. And we see this, but we don't connect it to it. So all of the ransomware attacks that have taken down healthcare systems, uh, you know, disrupted local governments and schools, which are going on right now, um, it's hard to directly tie this, but I, I speak with a lot of uh, vendors who are in the threat intelligence world, and Microsoft has actually done a lot of job, a good job connecting this to Putin. But if you track the le leading edge ransomware that's making money, there's a direct line back to, to ex-KGB people who uh, uh, obviously, Putin worked at the KGB. But as I said, this goes back a long way, if it, back to est Estonia and other uh, attacks against the Ukraine power grid uh, years ago, traced directly back to Russia. So I guess, you know, I guess what to say about this is um, the general public doesn't realize this, but uh, the Defense Department at the nations that are being attacked do. 
So in, a, in one sense, and I'll talk about this a little bit in my, my spotlight segment, it's kind of a repeat of what we saw in World War II, where um, the aggressor is, is really um, using the latest tactics effectively. And that's where we are at the moment. But it kind of wakes the sleeping giant. So there's a lot going on now with the Biden administration, cybersecurity-wise, to uh, you know mandate some of the good practices that uh, businesses should have been doing anyway. And I imagine that there's a lot of um, alliances being made. Uh, the law enforcement thing, you know, could be folded into that. I think there's going to be more cooperation and uh, that is directed at the criminal element and you know whether the lines are blurred if it's for-profit criminals versus nation state you know warfare well the lines are blurred so but there's more attention being placed behind the scenes so on one hand we don't really pay attention to it on the other hand it is bringing more direct attention to what's wrong with the internet and why it's so easy to attack and use it as a disruptive tool for criminal purposes or for uh you know, global power grabbing, if you will. Do you need to report a cyber threat? Virtual Guardian's emergency response team can take immediate action. Responding and recovery are vital to ensure your business critical services are maintained. Visit virtualguardian.com and click on report a cyber threat in the upper right hand corner or call us at 1-800-401-TECH. That's 1-800-401-8324. You're in Canada, Byron. Now, I don't know if you, you read about it, but last week, a Russian group claimed a cyber attack on a Canadian oil pipeline in Western Canada. On April 12th, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau confirmed that it was in fact a Russian cyber attack that brought down the Premier's and the Senate's website. He also acknowledged the pipeline attack. I guess this is all linked to Canada's support of Ukraine. Well, yeah, as a business journalist, the, the one rule you follow is follow the money. So, yeah, I think if you, I think it's, yeah, reasonable and logical that absolutely it is. And like I said, you could, you could piece this together years ago to when Russia was doing an invasion of uh, Georgia. Georgia, yes. And he was going to put tanks in there. But the, the tanks weren't really working. So that's kind of the moment when he figured out, well, if we can, uh, you know, do DDoS attacks against the leadership and disrupt their communication with the people and spread propaganda that way, that was the moment. So it's, it's really been a concerted strategic effort on Russia's part. And what we're seeing now is the adoption of ransomware, which, which developed on, a, on another track. By, Russians were a lead in that the Russian uh, criminal rings. And uh, like I said, they, their pedigree is with the KGB. So they're off making all this money and, and uh, the lines really are blurred. They've developed all their bots and their access and the ecosystem to support making billions and billions of dollars, trillions is the impact. It's, I've seen several surveys in terms of cyber criminal activity. And so use it strategically, uh, pretty, pretty simple logic there. 
Byron, if, if I could venture just one last question before we move on. Um, when is all this going to be declared as an act of war? I'll, let me explain myself. If, if there were boots on the ground attacking critical infrastructure, we would retaliate the same way. They're still attacking critical infrastructure today. And we don't hear too much about our retaliation. If we have retaliation on an electronic level, mm -hmm to the same level we're being attacked. Could, could you just say in like 10 seconds, because Jen's uh, reminding us on the time, <laughs> just quickly, are, are there, is there retaliation or just taking it in right now? Uh, depends what you mean by retaliation. No, in, in, I guess what, what you're really asking is, the answer is no, there's no direct tit for tat cyber attack back on them at the, that I know of, that we know of, but there is a lot of other stuff going on to, get everybody's attention to harden the systems and do containment, the stuff that will make a difference in the long run, but it's gonna take a while for that to play out. Maybe one more just quick point. I, I was reading an article this morning about Iran using Russian infrastructure to use um, attacks using ransomware as part of their cyber warfare effort with no intention of actually giving the data back. So using ransomware to collect data, uh, hold systems at hostage, even potentially collect the ransoms with no intention of actually providing the keys if payments made. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to continue to watch and see how nation states are utilizing cyber attack for their own initiatives. No, well, if you think about it, it's uh, <laughs> from, the, from the attacker's point of view, from the nation state, there's two benefits there, right? You, you, you supplement your war chest and you get strategic damage done against your enemy. All right, thank you very much, everyone. So let's move on to topic number three. Last but not least, Bill and Bob, you both collaborated and looked into employee BYOD habits and how they put their data and organizations at risk. Can you please fill us in, gentlemen? Yeah. I so for starters, BYOD is certainly nothing new, but I think post-COVID and during COVID, as we continue to work from home, work from really anywhere, um, the proliferation of ubiquitous access across all your devices to be able to do both your work and your personal activities on the same device or multiple devices has just continued to uh, explode. And with that proliferation, the attack surface has also continued to grow based upon the number of devices we decide to carry with us. Sorry, the green screen or blue screen is uh, blocking my phone, iPad. But, um, but we all have these devices that we rely on, not just for work, but for everything else that we want to do in our personal lives. Um, that expanded attack surface, though, leads us to additional areas where we can continue to be attacked, whether that's through phishing and mobile phishing malware, ransomware, um, utilization of weak passwords across the board, uh, as well as insider threat. So the, um, the article, it was actually released by a, by a vendor, but it could have been released by just about anybody. It, it brings us to continue to think about how do we not only utilize our mobile devices or personal devices, but how do we as cybersecurity professionals continue to protect those devices? Um, there are a couple interesting statistics in there where they say that 85% um, of employers actually require 
employees to use their personal devices for work efforts. Uh, and only 63% of the people within that particular study feels that they have adequate protection. Uh, and that gets into the conversation of how do you continue to protect the data, protect information, uh, potentially protect things like, oh, I don't know, very sensitive uh, war documents and solutions like Discord. But um, it's, a, it's a very challenging problem for us to have. And, and uh, I know Bob's done a lot of work within organizations when he's a virtual CISO, so I'll, I'll get Bob's thoughts. Yeah, I think what you're hitting on really is when we hit COVID, um, we had to invest, as a lot of the organizations I've been working with, you invest in facilitating your employees to work from anywhere with whatever device they have. Because if you remember, there was a shortage of laptops as soon as it hit everyone working remotely. So that investment was made more heavily than budgeted. And then it's got to go to other places in the organization. So with, uh, you know, it's almost the same concept, Byron, where you talked about the ecosystem of, of attackers and, and affinities with different sides in the war. It's the same thing we're fighting, I think, as cybersecurity professionals and IT professionals together. Um, you've got limited budget, you've got limited, um, you know, employees with the skill set to be continually analyzing the the changes in the threat environment and where the holes are uh, in that, as well as trying to get more budget to, you know, maybe you need to enhance your MDN. Some people are backing off because they couldn't do it well enough. And, and it's the whack-a-mole game that we all continue to play because of the changing environment, the lack of budget, the lack of personnel. And I think that challenges every organization. And, and that's the fight we're in. Great. Patrick, Byron, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I wrote about BYOD when the first iPhones came out uh, at USA Today. So yeah, it's not it's a long running problem. I think if you look forward though, what's what's happening and you guys are all aware of this is I'm going to RSA next week and we'll, we'll, that's why I'm kind of absorbed in this right now, but there's, advances being made on the endpoint detection and response side that will that'll help and that's kind of legacy stuff that's advancing but that's not going to be enough i think there's you know there's other movements that are happening that have to do with different layers like actually encrypting the data better defending the edge in a more unified way all these things are moving that are there's I mean, the old saying is there is no silver bullet. There really isn't, but there's a whole bunch of bullets in the air right now that, again, it's not going to happen instantaneously, but it'll get incrementally better. And so that's what, you know, that's, I suppose that's the optimistic <laughs> point of view is that things are slowly incrementally improving and hardening. But why is it taking this long? How long have we had the iPhone, right? Well, there, there's the changes that we take. And I think as you look at where the vendors are going with the ecosystem and, and you know, Patrick, Bill and, and Byron, when you're there next week, you're going to hear that because I know we're already talking about them with our clients as we're looking at how they patch these holes, which vendors are working with which other vendors so that we can see in the next year, where are we going to set them up for the next one to three years to, to patch these holes with the, you know, with our partners that are, um, combining their technologies to work together so that we're not, we're, we're going to help our clients make the best use of, of their budget uh, in that sense. And, and we have to, and, and our partners have had to do that. And I think we are catching up. Yeah. I think there's a lot of um, features out there that help with each one of these particular uh, problems. 
And to Bob's point is our, our partners are continuing to merge together to create better platforms for addressing security across all devices. So I agree that's the direction that we're headed. All right, thank you very much. Well, that concludes the hot topic segment. So we're going to pass the mic over to our spotlight speaker, Byron Akohito. So Byron, you've prepared a talk to us today titled Network Security Reborn, Leveraging Machine Learning Automation to Drive Legacy Defenses into Obsolescence. So the floor is yours for the next 15 minutes. Take it away, Byron. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Well, I mean, it it's no, it's uh, Bob and Bill just actually did a perfect segue over to what I'm going to talk about, which is, you know, where are we heading? We're heading toward interoperability of the best systems, new and old, you know, set up in new platforms. Um, but we're, <laughs> we're very early in that process and, uh, where do I start with this? I mean, obviously what's happening is that software has, we live in a software world, not software defines everything. If you just look around at what we watch on streaming to how we do our businesses to everything else, that's all because uh, the way software is uh, being developed and stored and tested and issued, um, is uh, happening in the cloud, right? And it's happening on all our devices. That's the whole B BYOD piece of it. So as a result, the uh, attack surface has uh, expanded. You're not, the companies are not just having to protect their data center on premises by sending, uh, you know, system administrators and tennis shoes over to, uh, you know, lock down the Windows system and Oracle database, et cetera. It's all out in the cloud now being, and the, the, the new applications are all being developed in microservices, you know, all using APIs. That's the key here is everything is now spread out and everything is being connected on uh, via APIs. And that's where the bad guys are, are making hay. Um, that's where the criminal and the nation state uh, systems uh, are basically in a candy store that's, you know, getting more open and richer with more access to uh, where the, uh, essentially the data is sitting, right? It's software and it's data. Data is the new goal, et cetera. So um, what's happening is that, uh, let, me, let me connect this back to what I, the, one of the topic that I talk about. Is again, what's, I think it's what's happening has been unfolding for a while in terms of the cybersecurity community and the companies figuring out that, yeah, we got to do cybersecurity, but it's a cost of business and, you know, we got it done enough. We got to keep moving to compete to the point where it's now cybersecurity actually has to be a part of the business model, or this is not going to move to the next level um, of services that we all want to see with, you know, autonomous transportation and solving climate change and redistributing wealth in a better way. That's not going to happen. And the technology can take us there, but we're going to have to solve security first. 
Are you a cybersecurity or IT professional looking to join an experienced company with a reputation for excellence? Be part of the team that brings you behind the shield. ESI Technologies and their Virtual Guardian and Navalogic offices are hiring across North America. Follow ESI Virtual Guardian and Navalogic on LinkedIn for frequent job postings or visit esitechnologies.com and click on join the team. So what's happening is the Putin's attack has woken the sleeping giant. It's not just the US, it's Europe as well. And regulators are pushing forward. The Biden administration is now uh, taking steps to mandate that the government, the federal government of the US actually must adopt the, the NIST, National uh, Institute of Standards and Technology cybersecurity framework, which is a very rich, highly vetted document that shows you how to do this, shows you all the best practices. So now they're take, he's taking pieces of that and mandating that for the Department of Defense and, and the federal government which is going to eventually trickle down. It'll take a while, but it'll actually become move faster, I think, because of what Putin's doing. And then on the um, private sector side, which, like I said, I'm going to RSA next week, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening. And it all has to do with uh, replacing or blending. Or let, um, let me rephrase that. It all has to do with taking new technology, new security technology that is oriented toward the cloud, is oriented toward uh, software being developed and, and run on, a, you know, on the fly and updated on the fly. It, the, the, the new technology is, folk, is, is good and it can get done because it's really, it's just big data and big data analytics. So now they're actually applying those tools that we've been using to stream entertainment actually toward cybersecurity. It's a perfect fit. So that'll take a while. And then there's frameworks coming along that focus things on the edge, like uh, secure services edge and protocols like zero trust. All these things are happening all at once. And the, the, what the, um, the companies who have been benefiting from digital services advancing, but not paying attention to the criminal ecosystem and leaving the candy store wide open and opening the candy store more open, um, you know, they really need the security community and the regulators to force them to do what's right, essentially. And I think it can be done. And it's, it's going to happen. In a sense, we kind of need Putin to, to wake the sleeping giant to cause this to happen. Um, and it's going to be interesting. And, you know, law enforcement will do the big ops, and they'll hit one mole here and one mole there. But that's not the big picture. The big picture is, how do we and how quickly can we make security part of the business model and therefore um, enable the next level of digital services? One quick thing. Uh, well, I'm, I, it just, just, just occurred to me, and it's one of the things I've written about in the past, but really where we are, if you want to think about it historically, is where we're... 
100 years ago, 125 years ago, the industrial age was just happening in the north uh, east of the United States and in Canada. We had all these in factories coming up with these new gadgets, but they were burning down, right? Because there were wooden factories. So that led to property and casualty insurance being created because this same type of thing happened. The, the industry and the regulators and the innovators paid attention and said, what do we know how to do that could fix this? Well, we could, you know, put fire extinguishers everywhere. We could stop letting dust fall everywhere uh, that can ignite. You know, we can train our employees to use fire exits, that sort of thing. I, I think that's kind of where we are with cybersecurity is things have moved so fast, but we have the technology, we have the tools and the innovation and even the way we're doing software development that fits right in. We're doing software development now to, so we can stream the best movie faster or, or do whatever else or edge toward autonomous transportation. But we have the same leading edge tools can be applied to making security what it needs to be to, to, so that we can all move this forward. I, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, sense, but I, I'm just trying to give you the bigger picture, which is what I try to focus on as a journalist is the bigger picture and then get the participants to talk in context of that bigger picture. What is their piece of the story and what are they doing? And let me say one more thing is, I think this is, relates to um, ESI and Virtual Guardian is if you think about it, there is a lot of pieces that have to be, as these new tools and practices become available, it's going to take specialized expertise to blend them and apply them effectively. And a company, individual company is not going to be able to do that very well, because that's not, I mean, that's a whole rich practice. And we have other models elsewhere that show us that Yes, there's a role here, a big role here for managed security services providers. And that whole market, which Virtual Guardian is in, is still is at a nascent stage as well, because really we haven't, everything else has, co it's coalescing right now. So I think that's what's going to happen is the, the platforms and the tools are going to um, come together and raise, all ships will be raised. And as part of that, I think managed security services is going to become something else. Uh, you know, there's a, one story I've written is how like the EDR people like CrowdStrike and even Microsoft Defenders, they're becoming more specialized, you know, and, and as a service that turnkey service and firewalls, next generation firewall people or web application firewall people are becoming more specialized. So I think that's, it's all moving together. It, it's maybe some of them will, will become MSPs or maybe MSPs will adopt them. It's a really, really interesting time. As a, as a journalist, I couldn't ask for a, a richer story to follow because as you can see, it affects everything. It, it, it affects where we're gonna take the planet if we can actually make it to the next level of digital services. So I, I hope that 
It's about uh, open it up to if, if I didn't make anything clear. <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. Have some questions from the panel already. Uh, Bob, you had something that you wanted to, to add? Well, I, I think where Byron was going is really where we see things happening in that when you look at what we do, we sit between those solution providers and they come up with a solution. We work with our clients who have to know their business. We are that glue in the middle oftentimes that can see where things, uh, you know, come along to the point where we're optimistic about being able to solve some of these challenges. So uh, I take, you know, when, when we all started in the early days of security, right, we talked about ring zero security. Well, what is that today? It's zero trust. How do you start from not trusting anybody to moving forward to now, you know, 10 years ago, you hear zero trust and you thought, that's a great concept everyone can agree with, but how do I do it? And to the point now where we can actually say, there are steps along the way. Um, there are two main components of it, um, you know, knowing your users and managing your identity and, and what applications you're locking your users down to for their business. Um, and then maintaining your segmentation of your network. And then there's threads that go through it and the visibility you have. So um, we provide, I think that role and it's a critical role in, in solving the problem. And we're all taking our own angle at it and trying to solve that together. And we have to, if we're going to keep moving the industry forward because security doesn't, uh, doesn't go first. We're always following. And, and when we come up with the models that will work, um, you know, there's, there's a good future for us. And, and so uh, I like what you had to say, uh, Byron, that was good. We're seeing it come true. Byron, maybe just a, uh, a thought, and I'd like to get your your response. So we were at Black Hat uh, last August, and Jeff Moss made a really kind of funny and interesting comments thinking he never thought there would be a Black Hat 20 plus years after, 25 years after they started the conference, because he assumed that by this point, we'd have security figured out. He thought we'd actually have the answers at this point. And I, I believe that the reason we don't is technology continues to advance and advance faster than our capabilities to respond and think about how do we put guardrails on whatever that technology might happen to be. So as you think about integrating security into the business, how do you foresee doing that when we continuously change our technology and our capabilities uh, at a very, very rapid rate? Well, uh, I think, Part of it has to be a hammer to force us to do companies to do this, which I think is regulation, right? I mean, that's that's the point. We need, I think there's that's been out of balance, especially in the US. I mean, if you take just from the privacy model, Europe, Canada, if that's a subset, you know, has been ahead of the US in terms of privacy because we're more open with our uh, capitalist system so yeah i, I think uh yeah it, it, it just needs to have the will to do it the the like i said i you know the technology has advanced far and fast but the the tools that are using to advance that technology why aren't we applying them to cybersecurity? well we're starting to right 
with new uh, protocols and platforms like zero, to, uh, zero Trust. So it's just like sifting this down to if the way we're doing this, it's visibility. Uh, <laughs> it's simple concepts, visibility, right? Where's my data? What am I doing with it? You know, what cloud resources am I doing? Azure, AWS, okay. What's the security posture of all those connections and where the thing sits? And then, you know, endpoints, BYOD. What am I, what am I doing with my endpoints? So we just need to take each, you know, I'm speaking in the global sense, but on a, on a uh, company by company basis, um, and in a vertical, in a sector industry, you know, that needs to start quickening a little more, if that makes sense. Does your organization qualify to get and keep cyber insurance? Businesses that want a new cyber insurance policy or to renew an existing policy need security controls in place to qualify. Virtual Guardian can assess your eligibility and help you comply cost-effectively, improving your security posture and reducing risks to your business. Contact us at 1-800-401-TAC. If I may, before we head on to questions, um, I just wanted to commend you, Byron, on your example. I love to give examples when explaining stuff on the Industrial Revolution from 100 years ago. It is so accurate, and I never thought of it. You're right. I mean, industries were, you know, had to invest in all sorts of different technologies, devices, processes to minimize damage. We're starting to see this with cyber insurance today, right? They're very prescriptive in what we need to deploy, EDRs, proper policies and, and specific technologies to to minimize risk. So the parallel is exact. And thanks for that. Thanks for sharing that. And I hope the team here will remember that when they're pitching to clients, because I think it says it all. Thanks. Excellent comment, Patrick. Really, really good. And thanks, Byron, for your spotlight talk. We are now in the question period. So in the audience, feel free to go up to one of the mics if you have any questions. And we do have a question coming up. Uh, meanwhile, Master Control, please let me know if there's anybody in the Q&A. So we have our first question from Jean-Francois. Please go ahead. You know that Jean-Francois often asks questions uh, in the previous Behind the Shield, so now he's live. I, I don't know if Byron, did you hear the question? No, eh? like we thought. So the question, if I may, I'll paraphrase it. So Jean-Francois was asking, you remember years ago, uh, following terrorist uh, attacks and all sorts of situations where the FBI wanted uh, Apple to share their encryption keys for iPhones and their cloud, and they refused. Where, what's the lay of the land now with respect to that? Is there additional pressure? Has it been done? I know there were court battles, you know, especially with your research around iPhones and your coverage. What do you have to say about the state of, you know, all these companies having to disclose encryption keys to the NSA or whatnot? That's a good question. Uh, I don't think the needle has moved much on that. The question of how much law enforcement and the judicial system can demand. Um, that was a good uh, test case and benchmark. But I think it's going to be case by case going forward, um, especially here in the U.S. 
I mean, in, I don't know about Europe or Canada, but, you know, like I said, we're way behind on the, the curve on basic, you know, privacy rights. So I don't, I don't think it's uh, changed much. The companies, I should say this, I, this is my observation is that Apple has seen consumer privacy as a strategic um, benchmark for them, a differentiator for them versus Google and especially versus Facebook or Twitter. So, and, and there's many other examples of this, but that's the, the most visible one is that Tim Cook wants to be seen as the privacy, whether they are or not, you know, you could debate, but they, they look for strategic opportunities to cast themselves as the, the U.S. privacy tech company. But yeah, yeah. Canadians would argue it's the new BlackBerry. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Do we have more questions from the audience? Yes, we have another one coming up, Byron. One moment, please. The big cloud providers out there are making millions of dollars. Shouldn't they be called upon to contribute a bit more to the cybersecurity effort? Personally, I would say yes. Um, they, uh, Microsoft, which I, like I said, I covered them uh, when they, when, when Bill Gates didn't even acknowledge the internet and then got security actually has done a lot and they, they deserve credit for this. Even though I'm the journal of neutral journalists here, they are doing a lot uh, and they've made a lot of mistakes on, on how to do it. And right now they're, they may be on the cusp of doing exactly that contributing in a big way. Um, and I think uh, Satya Nadella has been brilliant about this. So if you think about Microsoft's installed base, they're still 70% of businesses have them in the back end with Windows. Well, the, their tools like Windows Defender, Sentinel, even Microsoft Teams, some other tools you wouldn't think of uh, are being used and incorporated into some of these platforms from certain providers. Even PowerShell, here's a great example of the way forward of how they're contributing. And in this case, maybe they didn't intend to contribute like PowerScript, which is this tool that the bad guys use to once they get inside to write little uh, instructions and, and, and manipulate the system. Well, now that's power, some of the um, cybersecurity providers are even using PowerScript as a countermeasure, so as a containment measure to shut down and isolate. So there is, they are, Microsoft, that's the example that I know about, you know, I don't know how much Google is contributing. I would imagine Amazon is contributing. I haven't, because at the, at the same time, they're pushing out these rapid uh, DevOps, tools and practices they get it they understand that if if the, it can't be secured it's not going to get to the next level so they are contributing and the, yes they could always do more thank you byron i'm looking across the room here to see if there's any other questions oh we do we do we do steve steve so byron the the question was 
what are your thoughts? What are the panel's thoughts on better public-private collaboration, whether it's under the form of regulation or any other mechanisms to ensure that there's mutual protection, whether it's on critical infrastructure or our business markets? What do you what do you see as having to be done between public and private collaborators, and maybe even including the on a geopolitical level, you know, the United Nations and whatnot? cross-border yeah i think that's absolutely we need more of that and i think there's been a lot of gains in the in the 15 years i've been covering this you know on on uh, the public private uh connecting in the uh, from the u.s in the u.s it's i know because i read about the u.s cybersecurity industry it's it's hard because it's so competitive and you know if you just look at the whole threat intelligence realm there's so much threat intelligence but nobody really wants to share they're doing more of it under president obama he called for that and i I think there's been there's now organizations that are focusing on that but it absolutely requires uh more more cooperation in essentially sharing the threat intelligence and sharing the 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 practices that work especially that area and the, the more that happens, I think, you know, then the, the tide will rise for everyone, in addition to the technology and uh, services coming together. I think we see some of that with the, uh, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agencies providing information to all of us at no charge as far as what is actually happening what you need to be looking for, what are the most common uh, attacks and exploits. Uh, the problem is a lot of people don't actually consume this very good information that's per- coming from the uh, public sector. They're not consuming as much as or, or as quickly as we should in the private sector. But I also think that there's a lot of information that private companies have that they're just simply not sharing with um, the government, each other, and so on. So uh, there's a lot of people holding on to, to their information, keeping it very, very um, secret because they don't want to show who's attacking them or looking at why and how. So there's a, a lot of room for growth there. I'll just add 15 seconds quick to that question. And I've been around the public sector for you know 20 years. And the challenge with CISA coming out now is that it split the group that used to be the joint um, FBI InfraGuard public sector, private sector, they can't share as much as they used to. So it's not as useful. So I see a bifurcation of that and I don't see the increase I, and, and I wish I did. And I think we have to keep trying to find the, you know, the way to crack that nut. Thank you. And one last question, which is coming in from our online audience. And I'll ask you gentlemen uh, to please keep your an- answers brief. So we all know that security protection is relative. It's like there will always be a race between the cybersecurity tools and best practices and the cybersecurity threats. Well, a race between the good and the bad guys. What are the efforts that could be done at the human resource level to let the employee also be part of the cybersecurity effort? Because I do believe that people are the best firewall if they are well-trained. Well, I'll go first. Uh, I completely agree that people are the <laughs> the main uh, a main primary component for 
that the attackers are focusing on and that can be better trained and, and better equipped to be alert for that. But that's just one of the layers. I mean, we need to do it all. I, def defense in debt is not a cliche. It's as we move forward, we're going to have to do it all. Encrypt, protect the data, protect the cloud edge, put zero day access, zero, zero trust access everywhere. In addition to train, I think it's all important. Beautiful. Thank you very much for all your questions. Byron, we're running a few minutes uh, over time. I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you to close out the show. So the only rule here, Byron, is to keep your answers as short as possible. Under 30 seconds, if you can. Are you ready? The first question, zero trust. Is it the future of cyber defense or is it a marketing buzzword? Defense. <laughs> Thanks. Question two. What's the Byron Akohito definition of XDR? Uh, it's trying to get detection and response, which is another crucial error that's not going to go away. Uh, advance it a couple steps forward. Question three, chat GPT, something to shake the foundations of the world or just a passing fad? I don't know. <laughs> Question four. Quantum computing, widespread use before or after 2030? Before. Question five. U.S. and Canada governments banning TikTok. Good or bad idea? Or who cares? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, does it do more harm than good? You can make that argument. All right. I'll, I'll circle good idea. And the last one that I have here. Oh, we got two more. Yeah, I'm going to have one at the end. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, go ahead. No, do this I'm, one first. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, go ahead. So for all the questions you, you said, I don't know, that's going to be an object of research and more uh, papers written by you, right? Yes. I'll ask them next week at uh, when I'm at RSA. RSA World. So I have a question from Greg, our CEO, and then I have a question that may be off topic uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, but uh, I have to ask it. So Greg, first, with ChatGPT taking us by storm, what are the implications for an individual or a business? Again, I can't, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know. I mean, there are many and varied. I'd like to study. Okay, well, let me add cybersecurity-wise to the comment. Uh, cybersecurity-wise, uh, yeah, it's, we're going to have to cut off that vector, I think, uh, of uh, making it even easier to autom automate malware development, if you will, for one thing. Very good. And my question, uh, you said you wrote an article, well, you were a key journalist and won your Pulitzer with the Boeing investigation following the crashes. What did you think of everything that happened with the Max 8? I think, sadly, it was a repeat of the same uh, dynamic of the corporate push to advance and compete and sacrifice the public safety margin and the, and the federal regulators uh, weakness in advocating for the public safety. Thanks, Byron. Uh, thanks for being so generous with your time. Well, that concludes the first ever session of Rapid Fire. Thank you everyone for your participation. And Byron, thank you very much again. If you've missed any part of today's show, 
just remember that the podcast will become available sometime next week on all podcast services. And if you're curious about APIs, we just spoke about APIs during the show and the rise of cyber attacks on this technology. Our sister company, Solsys, has just released a blog called 15 Practices for Shielding Your APIs from Attack. So you can find that on solsys.ca. Before we sign off, I want to thank today's Behind the Shield Spotlight guest, Byron Akahito, for his very generous time today. My pleasure. You can read Byron's cybersecurity thoughts, as I do regularly, at lastwatchdog.com. A big thank you also to our regular panelists, Patrick, Bob, and Bill. Thank you very much, guys, for your insights. And a quick shout out to the people who made the show happen behind the scenes, technically. Jennifer, as always, behind Master Control, and Christian for all his help with uh, the computer wires and setting all the audiovisual. Thank you very much, guys. Finally, to everybody who's listening at home, and you were several people doing so, thank you. Uh, thanks for your continued support. If you're not there, we wouldn't be doing what we love. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And in closing, as always, remember that when you're behind a shield, you're ahead of the game. Thank you very much, everybody. Take care. Thanks, Byron. Thank you.